The session uh, has invited Dr. Rick Skaronsky to our pulpit today for several reasons. Most of you know that Rick is a dentist, uh, and he has for many years, I think, uh, did you say 17? 17 years has done missionary work um, in various places, in particular, uh, I know Central African Republic was one of the places he did a, a good deal of work. In fact, we in the past have helped support that ministry called Donate a Smile. And so not only was he doing that physical labor of love of providing dental care for people who had never seen such a thing, uh, it's hard to imagine the desperation that there must be in those situations but also to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them while providing that kind of of care uh, as he's there. He's also been an elder and served for a while at Grace Baptist Church, uh, his home church in Michigan, and served as interim pastor twice in that church. Uh, Last year, he and his wife, Joelle, moved to Nacogdoches uh, to join other family here uh, and... um, that was, and they joined our church last November. He's been working as a dentist at the Brown Family Health Center where he has developed a dental program that is focused on serving those in our community with HIV. A few weeks ago, after thinking he was having a flare-up with a, back, a prior back problem, uh, he began to have other symptoms, and Joel took him to the ER, and after several tests, They let him know that uh, he had stage 4 metastatic cancer with multiple tumors in various parts of his body. Since then, they have identified the origin of the cancer, which is a good thing. It helps them uh, customize a treatment for that. And and so this has enabled them, again, to precisely identify the cancer and provide targeted therapy, which has now begun. And so please be in prayer about that, that the Lord will use that to be effective to help shrink those tumors. Moreover, um, on Sunday, February the 28th, we had a special prayer service for Rick here at the church. Rick has a sound theology concerning the sovereignty and goodness of God. And he has demonstrated that theology with his attitude, words, and actions. He desires to honor God in this trial through his faith uh, and also by serving God's people. This isn't new for him, but rather one more example of his long walk with God. There aren't many who I would ask to do such a thing, uh, but I want you to know that Rick was both humble and eager to accept the invitation to share with us today from God's Word and some of the lessons he's been learning. And so, may the Lord be with you, brother. Welcome. Thank you, Pastor Booth. As we begin today, I ask that you would... um, Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of St. Mark in chapter 5. And as I read the text for today's sermon, I ask that you would stand with me and recognize the honor of God's Word as 
I read out loud and you read along together, starting in verse 21, and then carrying on to the end of the chapter. Hear now the reading of God's word. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, Get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Please be seated. Well, a very good morning to my church family. It's hard for me to describe the joy that I have in my heart to be able to say that. That I would come down here to Nacogdoches, deep east Texas, and be welcomed in that you guys would just take this old Yankee boy into your hearts. I'm telling you that I am blessed. And to live in community 
to find a congregation of believers in Jesus Christ who take it seriously, who don't just go to church, but who are the church, because that's who they want to be. That's a blessing for Joel and I because that's who we want to be. We found a fit here. And we're so grateful for that, and I'm grateful uh, for this opportunity. I'm thankful uh, to Pastor Booth and the session who give me this opportunity, especially given my circumstances, which were very surprising to, to us. And I'm especially grateful because Pastor understands, and I know that you understand, that when we gather together like this in the presence of Almighty God and Jesus has said, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. And we sit in the attendance of God's word and ask and expect him to bless us through this process. This is no longer just public speaking, is it? This is holy ground now, here and there. And it's thrilling for me to be a part of this. If this were to be my final hour, what a legacy to spend it like this with you. And so before we begin to unpack the text that we have read today, let me just pray. Will you pray with me? O word of God, speak. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Not to me, O Lord, not to Rick, but to your name be glory because of your love and your faithfulness. O Lord, enable your servant to speak your word with great boldness and joy. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through your holy Son, Jesus. And above all, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray in Jesus' name, in his identity. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, today is Palm Sunday, isn't it? We've got a wonderful procession with the kids. And um, it's a very important day on the church calendar. And it's a day that we commemorate the celebration that we read about in uh, the New Testament reading where Jesus rode into Jerusalem and they put the palm branches down and they did that whole thing. And the people at that time were celebrating all the things that Jesus had accomplished, even though they didn't understand all the whys. But it was one of the high watermarks of Jesus' ministry on the earth, this triumphal procession. It was near the top of his popularity And the people at the time thought that they were leading a parade. What they didn't realize was they were leading a funeral procession. But Jesus knew that. And it's important that we understand that. 
because today is going to be a little bit different of a Palm Sunday sermon than perhaps we have sat and attended in the past. I don't plan to talk about palm branches today. I'm not going to talk about donkeys. I'm not going to talk about crying stones. Because the purpose of the triumphal entry was to put God's stamp of authority over all things and to fulfill the purpose for which Jesus came. When Jesus went down the hill during the triumphal entry, the truth is, he was going into the chute for the slaughterhouse because it was the beginning of his journey to the cross and to the tomb beyond. Jesus did come to earth to die, to redeem us from the consequences of our sin, but he did more than that, didn't he? He also, by the love and power of God, manifest In the person of Jesus Christ, he transformed death for us. And we can let that sink in. Jesus not only changed through the events of Easter week, he not only changed what death means for us, he changed what it is for us. Hallelujah. But here's the thing that I want to make sure that we understand. Jesus did not become the resurrection and the life when he came out of the tomb Sunday morning. He always was the resurrection and the life. But there is Easter week is super important because there was a time when the Pharisees challenged him and they said, what miraculous sign can you show that proves that you have authority on earth to uh, enforce the claims that you are making? And Jesus said, tear down this temple and on the third day I will rebuild it again. And he was referring to all of the events of Easter week. So even though Jesus was always already the resurrection and the life, that's what he told Martha at Lazarus's tomb, Right? He proved it. He put his stamp on it at Easter because he called his shot and then he did it. That's who our God is. And when we remember that, then we have power too. When we face a crisis in our lives, And we can face a a crisis with calm, with faith, with peace of mind. And we can have confidence in God, our Savior. And to illustrate that, rather than talk about the triumphal entry, though it certainly ties in, we are going to look at this example from Mark, which happens early uh, in Jesus' ministry with Uh, the synagogue ruler named Jairus. So uh, let's go to the text and we'll unpack it together, shall we? Let me just get a drink. 
here we are in Mark chapter 5. And Jesus has just been working in the region of the Gerasenes. That's the first part of chapter 5. And that's the story where Jesus drove out the legion of demons from the guy, sent them into the herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs ran down uh, to uh, drown themselves in the lake. We have a feral hog problem here in the Nacogdoches area, for those of you who are visitors. And sometimes that would be convenient if we could do that. (laughs) But be that as it may, that has already happened. And then Jesus got into the boat and um, he crossed over the other side of the lake. That's where our text begins here in verse 21. It says, when Jesus had had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, there's our context, it says, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Uh, Just as a point of context, what we are about to study happened in broad daylight, in the public eye, in a local community. There was nothing hidden. There was nothing behind closed doors about this. There was no denying what we see. It says, then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Now, to help us today, I want us to understand what those two sentences mean in the context of who Jairus was in his community. Jairus, we are told, is a synagogue ruler in this community, and it's not that large a town. So everybody knows who Jairus is, and he knows all the people in this crowd. He is being a synagogue ruler. He is a man who has status. He is a man who has prosperity. He he is a man who has influence in his community. And... As part of his job, his organization's official position about Jesus is to be against him, is to be against what he stands for, it's to be against what he is claiming because Jesus' message was decidedly anti-establishment. And so it is no small thing in public, in front of everybody who knows Jairus, that he comes to Jesus and is not towing the party line. But we see here that Jairus is facing a crisis. And all of that doesn't matter now. And if you have a crisis in your life, if a loved one in your life faces a crisis, they come out of nowhere. And they turn your life upside down. I promise you. And it changes your priorities. It changes what you see and how you see it. But Jairus did... 
what any of us should do when we face a crisis. He went to God. Because who is Jesus? Right? Now, Jairus might not have understood Jesus the way we do today. But at the very least, he knew that Jesus was sent by God and was wielding great power on God's behalf. And in spite of everything that Jairus, the reputation and everything that was at stake, it says that he came to Jesus and fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him about his crisis. Falling at somebody's feet in a third world country is a very big deal. Here in the third world of the New Testament era, the feet were considered one of the dirtiest parts of the body. Uh, Even in, in third world countries today, which I spent 17 years in, especially if that country is dominated by uh, a Muslim worldview, it is a huge insult to show somebody the bottom of your foot. You might as well give them the finger. That's the truth. You just, even by accident, you just don't cross your ankle up on your knee like that so somebody else can see it. You don't. And uh, it's a big deal. And it was then, that's why it was such a big deal we see in other scriptures where uh, Mary anointed Jesus' feet with the perfume. Remember that? And everybody who is kind of snooty, they all took offense at that. That's why. And that's why we get into Easter week, we get to Maundy Thursday, and Jesus, Jesus of all people, washes the apostles' feet. Are you kidding me? That's why. So when Jairus, who is the synagogue ruler in this local town, falls at Jesus' feet, even though Jesus is the guy who represents kind of the antithesis of what the synagogue is about, he's willing to do that. It's a big deal. And what that represents for us is praying to God in belief, praying to God with devotion in a crisis. And, of course, we learn what Jairus' crisis is. His little daughter is dying, but he confesses his faith that if Jesus will put his hands on her, she will live. So, in verse 24, it says, Jesus went with him. And it says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. So the whole crowd went. So this whole throng is going to Jairus' house, wondering what's going to happen. And then we have the account of the woman, starting in verse 25. A woman was there, subject to bleeding. She had all this trouble. She had done every physical thing she could, just like Jairus had with his daughter, not making a difference. I'm thankful for today's medical care. A little better than they had then. But they had done all they could do. And, of course, she touches the hem of his cloak, and she gets healed just like that. That brings us to application number one of this message about Jairus and the crises that we face in our lives. 
Sometimes when we have a crisis and we pray earnestly, we humble ourselves before God, sometimes the Lord will step in and fix it just like that, just like this woman. But he didn't do that for Jairus, did he? He could have. He told the centurion in another account, I don't need to come to your house. You just, your servant will be well. And it says it was that hour. Same thing with this woman. If I just touch the hem of his cloak and bang, that's the way it was. Sometimes Jesus will fix our problem, our crisis right away. But other times, we do all the same thing. We're like Jairus. And Jesus says to us, come on with me. We are going on a journey. Sometimes he says, come on with me. We are going on a journey. Speaking just for me, I like the other way better. (laughs) But I tell you what, I have absolute confidence because I read it in the scriptures every day. I have absolute confidence in the power of God and in the love of God that is deep for me and that his promise is faithful. And I have confidence and submission to his authority. That when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he meant all over every person, over every circumstance. And he has the legitimate authority to fix it now or to take me on a journey. And when we face a crisis, when you face a crisis in your life, as I'm facing mine, I need to take this instruction from this account that the Holy Spirit left for me to see. And to say, sometimes the Lord answers my prayer, answers your prayers on my behalf by taking us on a journey. And that's okay. So we we walk with him, don't we? We're going to walk with him together in my crisis, my family's crisis, and I in yours. I'm walking with you in the crises that that I know about. Pastor and I talk about different people that I can be in prayer for. It's It's not all about me. I'll talk more about that in a minute. So we, like Jairus, are on a journey, and we're walking with Jesus And he has promised to help us. So, we get into verse 26, 27, down through 29, and crazy things happen. Remember, Jairus is beside himself with worry for his daughter, who is at death's door, literally, and he has gained the promise of Jesus, whom he went and prostrated himself for, to come and help. And then, he stops it all... To heal this woman. And then he stops to talk to her about it. Can you imagine? It says in verse 30. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. And he turned around in the crowd and asked who touched my clothes. And the apostle's like, are you kidding me right now? You're in a human car wash. But Jesus, it says, and Jesus didn't go, oh yeah, you're right, let's go. 
It says he kept looking around to see who had done it. And then when the woman knew she was outed, and she knew what, that she had not actually asked permission, she came and fell before him, trembling with fear, also at his feet, notice. There is room at Jesus' feet. There's room for me. There's room for you. And Jesus talks to her and deals with her. And Jairus is going, um, Lord, hello, uh, I, I, I was here first. <laughs> and he's got to be, by verse 30, by verse 34, Jairus has got to be thinking in his heart, why her and not me? I'm the one with the crisis. I was in line. But Jesus spends time on this. And Jairus is watching the time go by. And then verse 35 happens. While Jesus was speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. We point that out again here in the text. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Two crushing statements that apply to us today when we face a crisis. How do we go on? The two statements were your daughter is dead. That's the first one. Here's application two. Sometimes when you face a crisis and you humble yourself before Almighty God, you submit to His mighty hand and you're praying earnestly and in faith and you're walking with Him because He said, Let's, we're going on a journey and you say, yes, Lord. Sometimes the next thing that happens is that your situation will get worse. It will get maybe dramatically worse. Maybe, as in the case of Jairus, as in the case of Lazarus, it might get, from an earthly perspective, impossibly worse. I don't think Jairus could imagine a harder scenario. He went to the Lord in faith, asking to avert that very circumstance. And it may have appeared to Jairus that he got waylaid by the crowd and distracted by the woman, and now, what's the use? She dead. The very thing he came out in public hoping to avoid. And that leads that impossible scenario led to the second statement. In Jairus' case, it was his friends who said to him, why bother the teacher any more? They said to him, basically, it's over. What's the use? You're too late. They basically said, 
Jairus, you are wasting your time now, and worse, you are wasting God's time. Hopefully, when you face a crisis, you don't have such fair-weather friends. I have enjoyed the support of friends and family in my crisis, though I have been inundated with some strange advice. It seems like everybody's Aunt Edna has some crazy cure that if I just did that, that's all I need. But they mean well. I did have a guy, a good Muslim friend in my professional community. It's a different whole perspective on life. He said, make sure you get your good deeds in before you go. I said, thanks, man. I appreciate you. But, so our friends typically today don't load up on this like that, but I tell you what does. I'll tell you what did for me. The circumstances pile up and they talk to you. And the frailty and the weakness in your own heart talks to you late at night. And it says to you, it whispers at you and says, this is impossible. And Satan sits on your shoulder. He sits, stands by your bedside. And he says, you are wasting your time having confidence in God. Satan says, there you see, he is not all powerful after all. And he does not really love you. And you're being silly. Give it up. And when we face a crisis, we have, to, we have to respond. We have to respond to that because that comes day after day, at least a little bit. So I want to help you. I want to help myself by suggesting three ways that we can respond to our crisis through application two. When we walk with Jesus, we're doing all the thing, and then our situation gets worse instead of better, maybe impossibly worse from an earthly perspective. Three things. One... See it, but don't stare at it. The crisis is real, and it's scary. And if you're going to fight it, if you're going to do everything you can, like this woman did, like Jairus did, you got to know what you're dealing with, right? That's what all the testing was for for me. you got to see it. you got to look at it, but don't stare at it, because that's where the despair comes from. That's why Scripture says we fix our eyes on Jesus. Right? We concentrate, we focus not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Not just because it's lasting, but because it's that powerful. That's what I want. And we have access to that through Jesus Christ, through faith. So we look at the problem. We see it, but we don't stare at it. That's number one. Number two, when you get into impossible country with your crisis. That's when you say, I'm in God's territory now. Even as Jesus asked the apostles when everybody was leaving him, and he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? Because he is the resurrection and the life. He didn't become that later at the, on Easter Sunday morning. He is the resurrection and the life. 
So we acknowledge, we, we, we see the crisis for what it is, and we acknowledge, if it comes to it, that we are in God's country now. We're in God's territory. And we worship in faith. We worship in faith. And I'm not talking about, well, it's over. Praise the Lord anyway, I guess. No, no. Worship, heartfelt worship in faith, is a weapon against the schemes of the devil and against the circumstances for which God has authority. I have a set of worship songs that are special to me, and I lay in my bed at night, or if I wake up uh, in the, during the nighttime hours in the early morning and I just sing these in my heart, they include things like the doxology, holy, 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 be thou my vision, crown him with many crowns, songs that just elevate my soul to praise and acknowledge the celebration of God's glory and his goodness. And, you know, when it says in Scripture, resist the devil and he will flee from you, that'll do it. And I pull that out every time I need it. And when you face a crisis and it's getting hard, That'll help you, too. So that's application, too. Jairus' friends, and in our case, sometimes these other sources, will say, your situation has become impossibly hard, even though you're doing the thing and you're doing it the right way. So give it up. Sometimes it gets harder. But not only do we have a response that I've just talked about, but God himself has an answer for us. He has a response for us because he fights for us and he wants to help us because we are holy and dearly loved. That's what the scripture says. And we are called according to his purpose. And we find that answer in verse 36. Ignoring what they said. Can you imagine ignoring that? Ignoring what they said. Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe, just believe. I have application three in that single verse. We need to be absolutely convinced that as hard as an impossible earthly circumstance is, impossible does not matter to God. And I mean, you need to be convinced, people. Can I say that again? Impossible does not matter to God. We have the whole account uh, where Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. Joel and I were just listening to that uh, in our devotions this morning, weren't we, hon? And when Mary was told by the angel, you're going to give birth to God's son and it's going to be a miracle. And she's like, excuse me? How is that even possible? And and she was told with God, nothing shall be called impossible. When you think about it, every single miracle that Jesus did that is recorded in here, by definition, was him turning over the impossible from some situation. That's what a miracle is. It's something that physically occurs that there can be no explanation for except to say God stepped in and did it. 
And not only are the pages of Scripture replete with examples of that, but I can tell you firsthand from my own experience in Christian life that I have seen God through prayer, through humility, fasting, and through this process. I have seen him work and heal and deliver in impossible situations. And no, not every time. But I have seen it happen. So I trust and I believe. And so does Jairus. He hangs in there. We get to verse 37. They get to Jairus' house and it says, uh, Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw the commotion he said, uh, what's all this about? She's not dead, she's asleep. And they went, come on. We know dead when we see it. But he put them all out. And he took the child's father and mother and the disciples and he went in. And impossible did not matter. What ended up happening was that Jairus had gone to Jesus with his crisis. He was at his end. There was nothing else to do. And Jesus said, come on, Jairus, we're going on a journey together, me and you. You walk with me. And while they walked, Jairus' situation got worse. It got impossibly worse. And Jesus said to Jairus, that doesn't matter. And so Jairus hung in there. He hung in there in faith. And at the end of that, Jairus saw the power of God work in his life in real time. And I can't tell you if God is going to work like that in my life in real time as I walk this process. And I can't promise you that he's going to work like that in real time in the crisis that you have or your loved one has or that maybe you might encounter at some time in the future. But I can promise you that it won't if we don't do this. It won't if we don't do this, and it might if we do. And that's application four. God is sovereign, and I'm yielded to his sovereignty, and we all should be, because he is good and faithful, and that's where we want to be. And we accept from his hand what he gives us. We are in his hands, not only in the crisis, but the truth is we always were, weren't we? Back in my church in Michigan, about five years apart, we had two good friends, each of which had a sudden heart attack and keeled over dead. And medical technology, right? Somebody was there, did the CPR, revived each guy, went to the hospital, all of that, prayed it up real hard. The first guy lived in a vegetative state, for about 18 months and passed away. Very hard time for his family, for us. The second guy, five years later, virtually the same situation. CPR, went to the hospital, hooked up to the wires, prayed it like crazy in faith. And it was one of several examples 
in, in my experience, where, where we prayed and we gave him into God's hands on an ongoing basis, and we just really said, Lord, we've got nowhere to go with this. If you will not step in, this is it. But we're convinced that you're not done with him, and I know his family's not done with him. So we need you to do what only you can do, and I don't care what it looks like. I said to God, I understand that these things are sometimes ordained because of the way you ordered the world and that one day you're going to make all things new and then it's going to be okay. But I also know of your power, and so I'm asking you to step in. And my friend Kent went from hooked up to the machines one day to that evening, squeezed his wife's hand as she sat in vigil with him, and the next morning, the next morning, my friends, his eyes popped open, he smiled at his wife, he greeted his pastor in a full sentence, he asked the nurse for breakfast in a newspaper, and by that afternoon, he was sitting in his chair in the hospital room entertaining people. And his birthday was yesterday, and he's fine. So, I pray believing. I pray big, and I believe big. Because it isn't just long ago. This stuff happened. And though I don't control it, God is in charge. But it happens today. So we pray in faith. And we pray in community. I'm so grateful for you. Even as I pray for you, as I become aware. I pray for God to be glorified by how he handles this situation. And I pray for the church to be strengthened through, this, through this, these circumstances and crises. Which brings us to the conclusion. We'd all like to stick around. I'd like to stick around too. For the sake of my family... For the sake of ministry, Paul said, if I am to go on living in the body, that will mean more fruitful ministry for me. When he was, uh, had a, a fellow worker in the gospel named Epaphroditus, we are told that Epaphroditus was very sick unto death. And Paul says, but God spared him in answer to prayer to save me sorrow upon sorrow. So God steps in sometimes not only for his glory, but for our good, just like Pastor Booth said. But even so, and that's fine, we get to cast all our cares upon him, and I hope you do. I could use it. But that being said, having a happy and contented and satisfying life on this earth, having comforts and prosperity is not primarily what we are here for, is it? That's what, not what drew us to this church, even though it's great that we come and we celebrate uh, God's goodness to us and we thank him, and we should. But we are really here. We draw breath, and we have faith as proof of what we are really here for, which is to celebrate the glory of God through our worship of him, our obedience to his word, and through prayer. We are here to do good for others and support them in their need as we have ability, including our family. We do get to take care of these folks. And we are here to inspire others to do those two things. 
by proclaiming the gospel to those who need it and by strengthening and edifying the saints through our example and our teaching as they need it and to be served as well because I need it. And all the other stuff in life that looks like it's so important, our time and our tools and our resources financially and our skill set and all the things we're capable of, our relationships, all of that stuff are tools that God graciously provides us so that life isn't a wretched misery every single moment and so that we can do these three things. And so we live for God in the body being consciously thankful for the opportunity, for the privilege of it. We live for his kingdom, and we do so in every circumstance, the good ones and the hard ones, because that is what we're made for, whether it's a crisis or not. We follow the example of Jairus, And we trust in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And we live that in real time. I'm so grateful that all of you are joining me in my struggle by praying for me. You're part of the team in prayer, and I am part of yours. What a privilege. Let's pray. Father God, though the crisis seems to have turned my world upside down, though things in life seem so very different, I know that in your sight they are not. I am your servant. I am your child. I am holy and dearly loved and called according to your purpose, and the purpose is good, and I rejoice. I'm thankful not for my affliction, but I'm thankful in it. I'm thankful for the strength that you give me. I thank you for the privilege of handling your word. I thank you for this congregation. Father, strengthen us all to cause the celebration of your glory in ourselves, in our church, and in the outside world. Do good for us as we obey you. Remind us of the example of Jairus. Remind us of your goodness and power, which is at work on our behalf, that mighty strength like you exerted when you raised Christ Jesus from the dead as we celebrate starting today, this whole week of Easter. Bless us, bless this congregation. I ask in the name, the power of the blood, and the identity of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Christians, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God, very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Well, it's good to remember, just as Jairus was on a journey, that we too are on a journey. It began with our baptisms. And we united ourselves to Christ, and he united us to him. That began that journey. A journey that began with death, but ends with life. And by being united to him, who conquered death, we go with him all the way. And we not only go with him, we go with each other. Isn't that great? We're not out here just individually making our way through the wilderness, but we are marching together as the people of God, side by side, carrying each other along, uh, sharing burdens, rejoicing together, praying, singing, worshiping, eating. And now we're coming to the table. Along the journey, God feeds us. And now we come today again. And he provides food, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. He provides drink. He provides nourishment. That's what the sacrament of the table does, is it takes the weary. We've, been, we've had a busy week. We've had strains and stresses and trials and burdens and fears and all kinds of difficulties. But we come back and we come together at the table remembering who we are and why we're here, remembering we're on a journey remembering he's the Lord and that he's taken care of us. And so we're here to remember that so that when we go out the doors for another week, we go forth with faith, with hope, with expectation, with encouragement, and we do that together too. We don't stop being together just because we leave this building. We remain that way. So let's come to the table and celebrate together.
what the Lord has done for us. O Holy Trinity, you condescended to us in the person of the Son. You found us when we were lost. You showed mercy on us and redeemed us. And your gift to us cannot be equaled, for it's of infinite value. Teach us, O Lord, to love you and to serve you and to be filled with joy and delight. Lord, we have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your honor dwells, that we may lift up the voice of thanksgiving and tell of your wondrous works. Open to us the gates of righteousness, and we shall go through them, and we will praise the Lord. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Bless now our rest, our meal, and our conversation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forevermore. Amen.